3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am on your dial. It's the 2nd of April this morning. And we are once again coming to you remotely um, because during the the COVID-19 public health crisis when we're all social isolating and staying at home, we are doing our best to work out how to get you really amazing radical radio from the comfort of our lounge rooms. I'm in fact recording this under a doona right now. So bear with us. Um, stay tuned. We will continue bringing you rad radio. Um, but just a heads up that some of the sound quality in today's show, you know, it might be a little bit interesting at times because um, we're working it out as we go along. But let me give you a bit of an overview of what we've got lined up for you this morning. So first up, we're going to be hearing from another episode of Carly's Liberation Loops series. Then we're going to be hearing from May Kotsakis from the Philippine-Australia Solidarity Association. And she had a chat with me yesterday about Damian Mirgante, a collective aid effort um, that is supporting migrant workers and international students. We're also going to hear from Jessica Morrison, Executive Officer of APAN, about what's happening at the moment in Palestine during the COVID-19 pandemic. And then we're also going to hear an interview that Carly did with Gala Vanting, uh, who is Acting President of the Scarlet Alliance, um, which is sort of like a part two to the conversation I had with Peaches last week about the impacts of the pandemic for sex workers. So all really excellent and valuable conversations. I hope you can stay tuned for all of them. And then I'm also just going to let you now know the songs that we're going to play over the show um, because I might announce them now and at the end as well. So we've got some really awesome new releases for you. You'll be hearing from Baker Boy, who just put out his new track, Move. You're also going to hear Sophie Grophy's new track, Evol. Um, so yeah, very excited for both of them. They're artists that we play heaps on Thursday Breakfast. Um, so we're always, yeah, always stoked when they drop new tracks. And then also a current favourite, um, someone that Carly got me onto, we're going to hear from Calypso with a track called Beyond Desire. So that's the music that you'll be hearing this morning from us on Thursday Breakfast at 3CR. I'm Max. And, yeah, stay tuned for the rest of great show on today, the 2nd of April. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM.
Like to share with listeners today. Other ways of responding to harm. Liberation. This sound shield that you could take with you to protest. Collaborative dialogue. Demystify the process. Liberation Loops. Hi, my name is Carly Beck, and you're listening to Liberation Loops, a series that has been created from my bedroom um, with the assistance of 3CR on the land of the Wandjeri and the Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. This is a series that dives deep into people's practices to challenge the criminal legal system. And through this series, I hope to discover in what ways people are already addressing violence in our communities and what ways people are learning to heal from harm. In today's conversation, I speak with Annalise Arfat. Annalise is a community organiser, mother of two, behaviour change facilitator and family violence practitioner who is passionate about transformative justice. Annalise loves to think, reflect, and practice accountability, prison abolition, and absolutely loves Mellifowl. Annalise works with persons of diverse cultural and economic backgrounds, 
and believes that social change can only occur collectively. Today's conversation delves deep into the work of changing harmful behaviours, and this conversation highlights the importance of self-reflective practice and continuously practising the balance of what Annalise calls coercive challenge and oppositional challenge. This afternoon, I'm at Insidium Radical Library. Um, it's quite a cool day today, actually. Um, beautiful rain outside. And I'm sitting here with Annalise Arfat on the Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nation. Thank you so much, Annalise, for sharing your time this afternoon. Thanks for having me, Carly. So can you first start by telling listeners a little bit about how you came to be doing all of this work? Um, I th- it's like a really probably a long story, um, but I definitely got into collective organising when I was about, probably about, you know, 14, 15. So I got into the punk scene, which then kind of politicised me. Uh, and then I started joining various groups, such as Food Not Bombs. I used to go into the old barricade books, which was on Sydney Road, and read the zines. I read a lot about prison um, abolition, read a lot about like prisoner solidarity. Um, and then probably when I, yeah, outside of that, I did a lot of, I guess, what, what would it have been called then, like anti-globalisation um, organising. Um, and then from there it was a kind of odd but natural progression to like blockading, forest blockading and then into wanting to do stuff around intimate partner violence um, in the like punk activist scene. And so, yeah, started uh, co-organising a World Without Sexual Assault collective but was also a part of like university women's collectives as well and... Yeah, I think I've always been politicised. Like, my family's really political. Um, my dad, you know, always wanted to for us to be, like, critical thinkers. And so I guess I, yeah, migrated to this country and was fed, like, a whole bunch of lies about it and used um, those kind of thinking skills to be like, oh, like, I want to do something around justice um, on, like, yeah, on so-called Australia. And now you do a lot of work um, with men's behaviour change groups. Can you tell listeners a little bit about this? Yes. So I worked with victim survivors for a long time and I think there it got to a point where I was talking to somebody about the work that I was doing and they were like, have you tried uh, working in the kind of intervention response end with people who use family violence? And I was like, no, I've... You know, like I kind of hadn't thought about that before in terms of like in the service sector, but I had done a lot of work in community responses and interventions to people who use family violence in my communities. And yeah, so I decided it would be really cool to like build some skills. And that's, yeah, that's pretty much primarily why I was like, well, the only way I can see myself doing that is I guess, trying to get some formal training and starting men's behaviour change groups. So, yeah, in this series that 3CR is producing, we really want to know um, some of the practical ways that people can, in their lives, um, use tools for community accountability and also work towards transformative justice. So what would you like to share with listeners today? Awesome. Well, I was thinking to share, I guess, like a framework and a tool. 
so which is called collaborative dialogue. And I think it's a framework because you kind of need to have a particular type of thinking to be able to do dialogue in this way. And then it's a skill because it's a doing. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to share the ideas around collaborative dialogue. So tell us more about this form of dialogue and also what other forms of dialogue are there? Awesome. Um, well, the, maybe like I'll speak a little bit about historically. So the ideas around dialogue have come from Piolo Freire who, um, and other people such as Bell Hooks who are kind of in the realm of this education framework called critical pedagogies. And that was the whole, I guess, lineage of education, which really challenged the, the idea that banking style learning was effective. And so in doing the anti-oppressive work that they, you know, people in that school of thought were doing, they discovered that when you worked with participants and students from their worlds, uh, they were more likely to engage. They were more likely to think critically about their worlds. Uh, more open to learning than if you stood, you know, at the start, at the front of a classroom um, telling people how to think. So both of them, I guess, and many other people as well, are, are in this um, field of work called dialogue work. So a bunch of people in the US, I guess, took the work of Friere and decided that it was really applicable to family violence work. Um, and their work was working with people who use family violence. And so they were doing a lot of intervention work um, and thinking about what what is change, what is accountability, and what do you need for those things to happen. And I guess what they found was what you need is for people to be open to learning, open to thinking critically about their behaviour, um, open to thinking critically about their worlds, the way that they do and have relationships um, the roles that they bring into those relationships, their thinking and beliefs. Um, and so then they started using this idea around dialogue. And then similarly, <laughs> there was also um, the ideas around narrative therapy, which um, in Australia is quite, I feel like is quite big. And in narrative therapy, they talk a lot about restoring and dialogue um, and also working collaboratively with your with people um, in your community or your clients or your you know the groups that you're running and so these kind of two things together um, is I guess what I base my work on um, so like that's yeah historically that's where the ideas around collaborative dialogue have come from um, and it's you know people are always like have this idea of making sure things are like evidence-based and wonderfully, there's a new um, piece of research that came out from Anne Rose, which is called Invitational Narrative Approaches to Working with Men Who Use Family Violence. And that just gives like such a wonderful um, piece of research that really solidifies that invitational narrative approaches, um, e.g. dialogue work, is effective um, in supporting people through their journeys of accountability and journeys of change. So can you kind of describe how you engage with people in this form of dialogue? So what does like a session maybe look like? Yeah, definitely. So there's, yeah, definitely skills in terms of what dialogue work is. 
um, and it probably looks different for, you know, each person doing it. But um, it's definitely about having like an intentional practice. So often if we're thinking about things like micro-counselling skills, one of the kind of prime things that people learn is, uh, for example, to like validate your client. But if you're working with uh, someone who uses family violence and their story of their use of family violence includes minimising and blaming, um, excusing their behaviour, then we're not wanting to validate that. Um, but we're wanting to validate um, that that's how they're presenting. But so, for example, like in terms of dialogue work, we would want to be intentional about how we're doing that work with somebody. So we're wanting to support that person to, I guess, restory um, their denial and their blame um, and, um, you know, the things that they're using to that kind of gets in the way of blocks um, them being able to, you know, take responsibility and move towards change, move towards accountability and responsibility, move towards nonviolence. So we're kind of supporting that person to do that, but we're doing that by being, for me, being strength-based. So we're looking for things that that person is telling us about how they want to be in the world, um, which for a person working with that person, it's important that we have the thinking that that person actually does want to change and that um, it's important for us to have the belief that people can change, um, the belief that people do want to have different kinds of relationships uh, and that they know themselves that the relationships that they're having um, are not good for them or their family or their intimate partner. So like with that belief, we're kind of looking out and hearing for the ways that that non-violent ways that that person wants to be in the world um, and the ways that they are demonstrating things like trust and support, non-violence, things that they are demonstrating accountability, um, the ways that they're demonstrating shared responsibility. So we're like really tuning into that with the person that we're working with or the, the group that we're working with um, and then looking to see what kind of beliefs and thinking that they need to be able to dem keep demonstrating um, those actions of nonviolence. Um, and so we're looking at that, those beliefs and thinking and then we're exploring like the impact of that. So then, you know, what does that look like when you have the belief that your partner is just as valuable as you are and then your action of that is that means that you're more likely to listen to them more and validate that they might have a different idea to you that's just as valid. Um, you know, so what's the impact of that on your partner, on your family? Um, and then we're looking out for also when people are wanting to do that, but there's been past harm. Um, what does that mean if you're, you know, trying to work towards nonviolence, but you have caused harm? Uh, so what does that look like for your partner um, or your family when, you know, they have experienced that harm from you? And so are there like additional things to be mindful of? Has trust been lost or broken? Um, is there fear from your family? Um, is there ways that your partner or family are responding to you making those changes which might be challenging for you because you've opened up a space 
were they able to voice things back to you? Maybe they weren't doing that in the past. So what are the things then to be mindful of when you know, there's been past use of violence? So we're kind of leaning into these things in a strength-based way, like hearing out for how people want to be um, and also exploring like the beliefs and thinking that lie underneath that. And then the beliefs and thinking that lie underneath um, their behaviour that has been abusive and harmful um, to actually kind of explore the contradictions um, and explore how they might move then and shift into the non-violent beliefs and looking at the benefits, I guess, um, of that kind of world for, for themselves. Yeah, but I think, I think a lot of it, interestingly, has to do with, like even though it would seem like the focus is on the person who's caused harm, I actually think so much of the work has to be on the person working with that person. So if you as a practitioner or as a friend even, or like, you know, if you're doing community interventions, community responses, um, if you yourself have beliefs that um, get in the way of you working with that person towards their journey, um, then it can kind of undo, undo the work for them. Um, so I think there's a lot of self-reflective work that we need to do in community accountability so that we are accountable to that person, that person's partner and family, um, and also to like our wider community. Yeah, it just sounds like as a practitioner, um, you just have to balance a lot of um, like coercion as well as challenging somebody. Mm. And do you find that this work works well with like peer-supported learning, so groups of people maybe who have caused harm, or do you find that it's much better to work one-on-one -on -one with somebody? Yeah, I think like I love the power of group work, um, and you know there's so much in terms of like in an appropriative way where that history has come from, which has come from learnings from um, First Nations communities around circle work. Um, and so like we know that it's really powerful for people to learn in, in groups, in circles, and really rich learning can come from that. Um, so I'm definitely biased in that way. I d I've definitely worked with people that like hate <laughs> coming to a group, um, but they also perhaps like you know, haven't been in that environment ever in their life and take a little bit of time to adjust to it. But I do think the kind of experiential learning that can happen when you're in a group is more powerful than one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and you can kind of see that working in groups because there's more people there, there's more minds, there's more discussion, in you know, between people, more ideas. Um, but I also think that individual one-on-one -on -one work is really important for people to have their own space um, to be able to, I guess, be supported in that way. Um, so, I, yeah, I think, especially when we're thinking about, you know, the premise of kind of why we're doing this work, um, you know, we're doing this work to hopefully, um, you know, build communities of non-violence and increase safety. So, yeah, thinking about... I want to be doing stuff that kind of suits different people's learning styles. Um, and, yeah, group work is really powerful, but so is working with somebody individually. And a mix of those is really important, as well as, I think, probably not doing this work in isolation. So if somebody has lots of stuff going on in their lives, 
then I do think it's important to support them in that as well. Like often, if the only work we're doing with somebody is their use of violence and they have other things like maybe they're, you know, struggling with housing or, um, you know, different dependencies. Um, and if we're not supporting that person on that, I just think it is harder than to create a space of, you know, let's do some critical thinking work around your use of violence. Um, and that person could be like, but you don't care about me because you're not doing the work to support me in this other bit of my life. So I think definitely something that I've seen in terms of um, like, yes, like dialogue work is really powerful when we're doing the work around violence, but like there needs to be more stuff that's happening in community responses, um, such as like, yeah, so supporting like the breadth of people's lives. The power of just material support um, can never go astray, really. Um, and just understanding state violence as well and how, yeah, we live under a colonial occupation that is not um, in the interests of a lot of people that live on this continent. And I guess, how can listeners use collaborative dialogue in their day-to-day lives or maybe start engaging with people in their lives that um, are causing harm? Mm. I think one of the cool things about collaborative dialogue is it just makes you a better friend in general. So it's like a skill that is not only good for talking to people that have caused harm, but for like anyone in your life that you're wanting to have like deeper conversations with. Um, And you said before that kind of struggle between or balance between, um, you know, what is like coercive challenge and what is oppositional challenge. And often, like, in these kind of, like, ad hoc, I guess, communities, um, there can be, like, really different reactions to things. Um, And, you know, in terms of, like, research stuff, we know that, like... um, And and this is tricky, too, because, you know, I'll say that um, when we're talking about, like, oppositional, if somebody has experienced harm and they are responding then that is completely and utterly an okay way to respond, um, is to be oppositional. Um, But when I'm talking about, like, people intentionally doing the work with people that use violence, then we know that, like, being oppositional is not going to create a space for that person um, to be able to think and do differently. And I think, yeah, the nuance of that is really, really important. But in terms of, like, the skills, I think, like, the idea of, like, meeting somebody where they're at and, like, being intentional. So it's, like, you're not just validating, you're validating for what purpose. You're listening for what purpose. So you're listening to somebody's, like, ethical preferences, the ways that they want to be. Um, You're validating perhaps, like, the feeling of being challenged by the conversation, but you're not validating their story of minimising their use, their use of violence or blaming um, or making excuses. Um, you're working in a strength-based way, so you're looking at all of the ways that your friend is already like demonstrating um, equality and equity in their lives and the things that they are, is important for them. And might not be in that relationship, but you know, dig, dig, and like find the things that your friend is already doing and thinking. Um, and, like, have a belief that they want that as well, which is sometimes difficult, but I think it's important for us to have. 
um, and, you know, working with someone in a way that, yeah, isn't like lectury, um, isn't like telling them what they've done, isn't putting words in their mouth, um, isn't screaming at them, isn't replicating um, the, the behaviour that perhaps they're doing to their partner and, you know, and or family. Um, so finding things that aren't like asserting power and control over that person um, to be able to like, yeah, walk alongside them. Um, so like, yeah, listening deeply, um, reflecting back their words, asking further questions around, you know, why, um, where their thinking is at with that and the impact of that thinking um, and what that looks like then for their partner. And are there different ways of thinking, um, different ways of being, and what then does that look like for their partner? So exploring those things in a very, yeah, I guess conversational way where the person like feels supported by you, where you're building trust and where you're also not, um, you yourself are not minimising and blaming um, and excusing. So if listeners are to engage in this kind of work and try and facilitate a conversation with somebody using collaborative dialogue, how long um, should people expect this process to take? Um, and mm, That's a really great question. And I think it also like speaks to what I was saying before about our own like beliefs and thinking around change and accountability. So like if you hold a belief that somebody um, somebody's change process should be really quick, then we are going to have like a whole bunch of expectations that perhaps can't be met. Um, so like in the context of the social issue, which is like uh, we live in a world um, where you know what many people in this work call dominator culture. Um, so we're learning like all of these hierarchical ways of being in the world from, you know, colonisation, from white supremacy, from racism, from patriarchy, um, transphobia, all of these like systems of domination and oppression. We're learning these from like the moment we're born. And so to unlearn these things is also probably, unfortunately, <laughs> going to take some time. And so although I think people can and do change really quickly, some of the like deeply embedded thinking um, might take longer to change. So for example, I work with lots of people who like completely and utterly will say that hierarchy is natural and that we must have it. So of course, if you're walking around the world thinking hierarchy is natural, we must have it, it's inevitable, then that's the way you will construct your relationship. Um, and so that person might, you know, walk alongside a journey of change and perhaps stop being physically violent, but perhaps their coercive control won't change because the underlying belief is that someone still has to be on top. Um, so I think, you know, when we're thinking about change, I'm like, how do we work, walk with somebody and towards that? We might not be there for, like, their lifelong journey of that, but hopefully we can get them in that direction rather than the other direction. Um, but, you know, we know that change can sometimes take a really long time. And so when we're thinking about community accountability work, I do think all of us need to be doing this work ourselves um, for our whole lives, like every day. Um, and if we're not practising that every day, then... Um, it's going to be really hard when something does happen in that community 
um, or in your community, uh, it will be really challenging because, you know, it might also confront, <laughs> um, you know, yourself in unexpected ways. Uh, but if we start to do that work ourselves, then we're less confronted and we can be prepared um, and we can support each other. And, you know, when I'm doing group work with people, like every group that I have, I think about something that I definitely need to shift in myself, like a kind of thinking that I grew up having, which created a certain type of behavior. And that's like every week I'm like, oh, my goodness, like, fuck, like that's really intense thing about me that I need to like undo. And, you know, some of those things um, I still have not changed. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, and I'm aware of those things. And I'm like, oh, I really want to change that thing. It affects people negatively. Um, so, you know, trying to have like groups of people around you that are supporting you to make those changes and like, um, you know, being in dialogue with you and opening up that space with you is so important. But also not having the expectation that like um, change is quick because sometimes it's not um, and we still need people to be working with that person or those people throughout their lifetime um, especially if we're in this work where we think that you know replicating prisons and putting people in prisons is not effective um, then we do actually need to do this work over the course of someone's life and keep doing it. And there's just so many different tools that people can use when it comes to community accountability. When have you seen collaborative dialogue maybe not work so well? Yeah, I think times when I've probably seen it not work so well is, I mean, kind of often, I think what people expect is, so we've, we live in this world that we've, we've gone to school with like banking style education, um, we mostly, like most people in the communities that I am in, like they're communities of choice often um, and they're communities where like there's lots of transients, um, there's perhaps like not heaps of trust. So I think in many ways people have an expectation of being punished and then when you're trying to do, like, the work of collaborative dialogue, people are like, fuck off. Like, um, you know, what is this? So it's, yeah, it's often, like, a confusing thing for people to be like, I actually, like, want to work with you in this way. So I think even that kind of takes them lots of time to, like, um, work with people to gain trust um, because there's expectations that it's going to go another way. Um and, yeah, I think people also, in terms of group work, like many people, like haven't been in kind of a space of critical thinking for a long time. So that's a challenge. Um, so it's not that critical dialogue doesn't work in those spaces, but it's about creating the conditions where people are wanting to step into it. Um, especially because if we're thinking about, you know, community accountability, uh, people are not mandated in the same way that the state mandates people into a men's behaviour change program. Like, I feel like people are socially mandated in community accountability, but it's really different. Um, so, yeah, I think it's like not that it doesn't work, but there are challenges to, like, creating the conditions for it to, like, thrive. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think we're all socially conditioned to learn a certain way. And so when people expect to be taught a certain way, then they're not going to maybe engage the first few times that you want to engage in collaborative dialogue with somebody. Um, and on that note, thank you so much, Annalise, for joining me this afternoon on 3CR. Thank you so much. It was lovely to talk to you. And that was a conversation that I had with Annalise Arfat about collaborative dialogue and the work of changing harmful behaviours through intentional conversations. Tune in next week to hear a conversation that I have with Vincent Silk, writer, poet and community organiser. We chat about everything from his first novel, Sisters of No Mercy, to the ways in which writing and literary works can challenge people's perceptions of the criminal settler legal system. See you next week. Community Radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. Cause I just wanna move And you can come too Yeah, that's me plus you So tell me what we gon' do Cause I just wanna move Yeah, you can come too And one time for the crew So tell me what we gon' do you heard it all before, but I can find a flaw, and that I can't ignore, wanna know who you are, you probably get this all the time, you're welcome to decline, since the minute that I seen you, baby, you been on my mind, conversation, R&B, I'm rotation, I'm gonna take my shot, no curve, no hesitation, finesse, perfect placement, my moves are tight, and I know she approved, cause the mood is right, she the energy, I need to make it through the night, and we're dancing like there's not a single soul inside, she drinks a little, but tonight, she's a sober type, she loves to speak her mind like it's open mic, I pray to God that this club don't close tonight, I never met a woman like this, she a prototype, no disrespect, you just one of a kind, got me strong and you ain't even trying, no lie, I just wanna move, and you can come too, yeah that's me plus you, so tell me what we gon' do, cause I just wanna move, yeah you can come too, and one time for the crew, so tell me what we gon' do. Gonna kick it when we get back home You know I got the good phone, put you in the zone Cause it's all about Netflix and chill Wrecking out my phone bill Every love song got me caught in my feels Shaku no more door door, I'm ruko no more dog Margalechukum na nina nitu yaka wargu yunan Mala rally to reminding me na Just the simple things, living it up There is nothing that is better than love I'm just a phone call or text away When it's time to go, it's late in the day But you wanna stay Cause I just wanna move And you can come too Yeah, that's me plus you So tell me what we gon' do Cause I just wanna move Yeah, you can come too And one time for the crew So tell me what we gon' do
You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. Up next, we're joined by May Kotsakis from the Philippine-Australia Solidarity Association to talk with us about Damian Migrante. Good morning, May. Welcome back um, to Thursday Breakfast. So, May, could you just give us a bit of an overview about this, about this collective aid effort that you've been involved in? Yes, Migrante, uh, I mean, Damian Migrante, it is a, a quick response to the um, to help those international students as well as uh, migrant workers who are on temporary visa, they are not covered or they are not included in the stimulus package. So there are many who lost their jobs, especially international students. Some of them are on cleaning jobs, on various services, you know, jobs like also on restaurants, and they lost their job. They don't have any other source of income or support. So Migrant to Melbourne um, organized this uh, quick response, or this is a collective compassionate action to help them. And could you just remind listeners, what is Migrante Melbourne? Migrante Melbourne is an association of Filipinos in Victoria, and uh, it addresses various issues that affect migrants, whether they are on temporary visa or on permanent visa. So there are many issues that affect them, which includes uh, abuse from employer, their, um, from agents, their uh, migration agents, and uh, also their, um, sometimes they lost their job, sometimes they are not paid properly. Even uh, families that they have brought here, they encounter several issues because they don't have any support from the government at the moment. They are not included in any Centrelink uh, support. And so what sparked you and others into starting this this quick response, um, compassionate collective aid? How did that exactly come about? Migrante has, uh, is, is, um, have several members and... Um, Many of our members is uh, have also friends who are migrants, who are international students. Sometimes they have families who are international students or migrant workers. So when this happened, we knew that those people will have no recourse of support. We knew that they will be very, you know, they they will be in a very difficult situation. Um, they cannot leave the country. They cannot go anywhere. So even if they have families in other, say, other state, they cannot go there. So they would be really depending on the support of the community. So because we are, we have members who are actually members of the community. So we, we knew that that will happen. And also several of them have already contacted uh, Migrante Melbourne and other sister organizations of Migrante. Mm. And so what, what types of support are you able to offer with Damayan Migrante? So we have, um, we started soliciting donations and also support from other members of the community and uh, from uh, solidarity friends. We have uh, Australian friends who actually are very generous and they um, donated, uh, they are donating some cars or goods, uh, other, other members of the community who used to be international students as well or who who were also migrant workers who are now on permanent visa they are donating some goods actually we were actually the very first respond 
first part actually that we get in the West. We I am I am located in the West. The very first response when we when we uh, advertised the Damayan Migrante was not um, asking for help but donating. Uh, a couple, a very young couple, came to the house and uh, bringing a bag of groceries, and it was really very sort of it was heartwarming mm. to see those people respond to to the call. And I, because we, we've heard on the show about a couple of other sort of mutual aid collectives that have sprung up around Melbourne. Um, are you are you in touch with any of those other groups that are sort of trying to organise similar similar collective support within their own communities? I was saying that many of uh, international students and even some migrant workers they don't have cars. Mm. So and and. Uh, even if we have several pick-up points in different areas of Melbourne, it's quite difficult for them to to come or to go to those pick-up points to pick up the goods. So we sometimes deliver. We deliver. So we have been we have been busy delivering goods to those people. And there are some students who live in a house, and there are several of them. Like a house may have uh, six students. So we started delivering if they have no no way of picking up the goods. Mm. Yeah, it's so important. You know, in, in your um, brochures and flyers that you have for Damian Migrante, you also have a couple of calls for the government, um, you know, things that you want the government to listen to in terms of uh, equal working rights, international students being included in, you know, all sorts of stimulus packages or other supports. Could you speak a bit more about um, what you're calling on the government to do at this time? Yes, uh, actually, there has been several. There are several groups uh, having this call, including some unions, that the stimulus package of the government should be inclusive, irrespective of the visa status. And we are also calling the same that the support of the government should be inclusive to all workers, to all uh, people uh, residing in Australia. That includes also those uh, tourists, not only those permanent visa or citizens. Otherwise, they have no recourse. That's, that is our call to the government. We, I heard several, um, you know, in the, in the, in the news that the government is thinking of that. But until now, I don't know if there is a new stimulus package that includes them. And May, would you be able to share with listeners an update about what is going on in the Philippines at the moment during the COVID-19 pandemic? Although the recorded cases of the virus, the COVID-19, is uh, is not big. The reason for that is not because there are few cases in the Philippines. The reason for that is because the testing yeah. of this virus is not widespread. And there is also a uh, selective, the testing is also selective. Only uh, the, the people in <laughs> in high places are being tested first. So, so because the testing is not widespread, so we cannot actually tell what is the actual number of those that are uh, infected, free and widespread and not prejudicial. So everyone, no matter what is their status, they are poor or rich, they should be tested. And also to have protective uh, clothing or equipment for those people in the, because the lockdown is very severe, you know, mm. they cannot go out of their houses and military people, military are, um, checking, you know, that there is checkpoint everywhere. But those in the checkpoint do not have protective clothing. Mm-hmm. So, and people are lining up if they want to cross the border, like 
actually news that there has been deaths found in their homes who died because of hunger. It's it's really very very sad that uh, you know the situation like that is is happening in the Philippines uh, when they have they have implemented military measures without consideration to the conditions of the people to the welfare of the people. How can listeners support Damayan Migrante and how can they find out more? They can go to Damayan Migrante. We have a web page. I mean a, a Facebook page or to Migrante Melbourne. We have a Facebook. There is a um, account number there, a bank account number. So if they cannot uh, donate any goods, which is not advisable at the moment to be going around, you know, mm. um, they can also donate some cash. Yeah, yeah because the, these international students and these migrant workers, um, aside from they need to eat, they need to pay their accommodation, they also need some cash to buy their personal, you know, necessities. Mm. And I hear you've got a petition on change.org as well. Could you let listeners know a little bit about that? Oh, we have a petition that we have mm. in, uh, in change.org. So, uh, our petition is calling the Australian government for uh, inclusive in the stimulus package, inclusive support to all the workers, no matter what their visa status is. So if you can go to change.org and sign that petition, please, and so that, you know, uh, the more the more signatures we have, hopefully the government will listen. Amazing. Absolutely, listeners, get online, sign the petition on change.org. We've been talking with Mae Katsakis um, about Damayan Migrante, uh, Compassionate Collective Aid Action Supporting Migrant Workers and International Students. Thank you so much for joining us on the show again, May. On Monday the 23rd of March, 3CR closed its doors to all presenters so that we could do our bit to help stop the spread of COVID-19. We understand that it's important for people to be able to stay at home at this time in order to reduce the number of people affected and thereby reduce the stress on our health system. Since the 3CR shutdown, programmers and volunteers have been working remotely to create new content and produce their show from home. We'll continue to bring you dynamic, up-to-date community radio during the COVID-19 crisis, so keep listening. They say you a danger I say that I am too I say that I am too I might be better than you You say you a nice guy you say the one for me You say I'm the one for you You always got me confused If I give you my heart, would you break it up now? Or would you protect it, baby? If I give you my heart, would you break it up now? Or would you protect it, baby? He a bad boy, he know that Harry lost But he think he's sick, I know the I'll be on Cause he thinks that he is like that I'm not on your home mood to a shy guy Whatever it takes If I give you my heart 
to Thursday Breakfast. And up next, we have a conversation with Jessica Morrison, the Executive Officer of the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. Hi, Jess. Thank you for joining us. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, or APAN, and the work you do there? Yep. So APAM was established about nine years ago now to make sure that all the amazing grassroots advocacy groups that are around Australia have a, a united central voice to be able to advocate at government, to media and to also undertake coordinated campaigns. So we're a membership-based organisation and have hundreds of individual members as well as dozens of organisational members like unions and churches and diaspora groups and advocacy groups. Great. And uh, what about you? <laughs> Can you give us a little introduction of what you do there? I don't know. I feel like I'm the luckiest kind of person in the country because I get paid to advocate for something I'm so passionate about. Um, so I um, went to Palestine about 10 years ago and spent a month there and was absolutely horrified with what was going on there. Um, so I came back and got involved in the movement and I've done a bit of campaigning um, on some other things before, so and APAN was just getting established, so I was the, in the right place at the right time, I think, and so yeah, so I've been employed to work for APAN ever since. And so, could you give us a bit of uh, or some insight or context into what is happening in Palestine at the moment, especially uh, since the sort of COVID nineteen outbreak? Yeah, yeah. And like everything, kind of what happens in the health sphere is always overlaid by politics. Mm -hmm. So the first Palestinians to be infected with coronavirus um, were hospitality workers who were hosting a group of Christian pilgrims who were coming to Bethlehem for the Holy Land and dozens got infected straight away. Um, and since then, Palestinians in the West Bank who are employer, who work in Israel have become the next lot of people who have been infected. Um, the Palestinian Authority moved really quickly at shutting down the communities and there's been some amazing mobilisation of community organisations and volunteers and distribution of resources. So amazingly, the West Bank's been able to keep numbers down. 
Uh, so at this point, there's only uh, just over 100 people in the whole of the West Bank who have been diagnosed with coronavirus. Uh, we don't know if that reflects the true number of cases because, of course, testing hasn't been as high in the West Bank as it is in Israel. But Israel at the moment has got over 4,000 diagnoses and 15 deaths. So what's happening inside Israel is very different to what's happening in the West Bank. Uh, so the Palestinians are saying, ironically, we're the ones who are now setting up checkpoints and roadblocks um, in our own communities because we really need to stop the thoroughfare. And the most difficult thing for Palestinians right now is having to choose between getting paid work in Israel or being able to stay in their communities. Um, so because the borders between the West Bank and Israel have been closed, um, people are needing to make the choice. Um, and there's some really horrible stories at the moment in terms of Palestinian workers in Israel coming down with what looks like coronavirus symptoms and being dumped at the checkpoint. Um, the only one person in the West Bank who's died so far is a woman whose sons worked in Israel. Um, so, of course, there's real concerns in the West Bank because they don't have um, the, all the resources they need, the health resources. But, but what we're hearing from Palestinians is they're feeling inspired to work together against kind of a threat that isn't Israel. And they're just finding it um, a, a frightening experience because they're all locked down like we're locked down. I mean, their schools and universities have now been closed for weeks. Um, so it's frightening, but they're finding a way through. Um, the, the situation in Gaza is what's freaking everybody out. And mm -hmm. the first diagnoses in Gaza were um, only just over a week ago. We were hoping that Gaza might get away with not having any any um, diagnoses because they're so locked down from everybody. But unfortunately, two people um, who were working overseas came home um, who were uh, infected with the virus. Um, and since then, they have those two people have infected seven others who are working in the isolation centres. So, and as of the time of those diagnoses, there were only 500 testing kits for the whole of the Gaza Strip, which is 2 million people. And like Gaza is like everywhere else. Those who are working or studying um, outside but live in Gaza, everybody tried to come home. So there are now a lot of people in the isolation centres um, who are just waiting to see um, whether <coughs> they're able to keep it. Um, contained, because uh, if it's not contained, the World Health Authority is saying Gaza has no way to be able to deal with, with any other kind of pressures on their health system that's already so pressured. Mm, and look, you touched on uh, quite a number of things, um, and I would love to talk more about the community mobilisations that uh, you mentioned. But before that, um, could you, could we sort of could you explain to listeners a bit about sort of the lack of resources? You mentioned it in what you just said. Because um, like I've I've seen reports that uh, Israel is blocking some supplies, like masks. Um, firstly, is that true? Um, and also, there's been um, uh, some reports of, of um, attacks by settlers in the West Bank on Palestinians. Uh, so uh, could, could you talk a bit about that and maybe um, sort of access to resources and responses to this? Mm. Yeah. So, so Gaza could be a functioning, vibrant, modern democracy. But for the last 13 years, Israel's maintained a complete air, sea and land blockade. So they've controlled everything that comes in and comes out 
including people and resources. Um, and Israel has been incredibly brutal in the way that it's enforced that blockade and, um, and as well as the fact that there's been military attacks on it. So Gaza does not, in a day-to-day sense, it does not have the resources it needs. It only have electricity a few hours a day. Most of the water is unfit for drinking. Uh, the UN said that Gaza would be unlivable in 2020, and here we are. Um, so just in terms of the basic life, Israel is not allowing any more than the, the most minimal kind of food resources in and often stops um, equipment coming in because it says it could be used for, for military purposes. So Gaza is already on the brink of survival. And so... Um, everyone's freaking out about what might happen. So there's not been a lot of data about what's getting in and what's not. Um, there is certainly reports saying um, from Israel um, saying that there is some materials coming in, um, which is great that there's some testing kits that Israel's donated and they're allowing in in medical stuff. But it just it's starting from such a low basis that actually they need to let a whole lot of material in and a whole lot of food and lifted restrictions on electricity and get some medical equipment in, allow them to have more ventilators. And, like, there just needs to be a flood of new resources coming in. So there is, Israel is providing some some basic equipment, but I think it's just a, 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 a tiny amount of what they need. Um, so that's in terms of, of the Gaza health system. So there's a whole lot of pressure internationally uh, for the blockade to be lifted, um, as we've seen through a whole lot of other things where, where, um, where this crisis has forced some social policy change that we've needed and seeing, you know, de-incarceration and stuff and, um, basic, you know, a universal basic income and stuff here in Australia. So we're hoping the same could happen in Gaza, that, um, at, with such a, a, a horrific threat, would see that, that the blockade gets lifted. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we're calling for. There's a campaign. If you go to APAN's website, apan.org.au, um, there's a quick pre-written email that you can send to the foreign minister asking us to add our voice um, as a country that at the moment is incredibly anti-Palestinian. We're mm-hmm. hoping that if Australia might say something, then that would add a whole lot of weight. So, so that's happening in terms of Gaza. Um, and the West Bank, there's some, some really shocking stories coming out of the West Bank in the last week. Um, Bet Salem, who is one of, um, Israel's premier human rights organization has put out a report about how Israel demolished the start of a field hospital that was starting to be established to start mm-hmm. to deal with some of these corona, um, cases. So, um, a whole lot of equipment had been donated and they were in the midst of building this field hospital and the Israeli military had demolished it and confiscated the goods. So that was just horrific. And look, settler attacks are are an everyday reality for Palestinians who have their equipment damaged, who have their trees uprooted, who experience attacks on their their persons, Mm. direct physical attacks. And, yeah, there's been more of those on on the weekend. And so I just feel sick to my stomach um, that, that it's, that, that, that these things are continued. Like you just would think that even the most militant crazies would pull their heads in at this point because the whole world's in crisis. I wouldn't have even thought people had the energy <laughs> to undertake demolitions or to attack somebody else's property. 
But unfortunately, those things are, are continuing to happen even amidst this. Um, and you, you talked a bit about some community mobilisation. So what, what, what could you talk a bit more about those uh, particular mobilisations within Palestine? Yeah, so Palestine, um, like many other uh, kind of non-Western communities, are very decentralised and, and often have um, ways of organising. So there are popular committees um, throughout most of the West Bank cities and towns, and mostly they've been mobilised to resist the occupation, the Israeli occupation, um, and have organised protests against Israel and all those things like this. And what we've seen is these committees mobilise powerfully. Um, the first diagnoses were in, in Bethlehem, where the, the tourists were. And so what happened is Bethlehem locked down first. And what happened is, is people from popular committees from all over the West Bank um, donated um, equipment and food and resources. So all these people who are locked down and, and the West Bank doesn't have a social security system like we do here. So there were people mobilised from all over the West Bank to provide goods and volunteers. Um, and what, what some of the photos that are coming out of the West Bank, so there's all the food distribution um, and then there's kind of visiting people who are isolated and in need. So people who are elderly and, and people with disabilities, there's a whole lot of, I think, Palestine. I mean, at the moment, Bethlehem has 3,000 volunteers who are involved in this food distribution. The second thing is, is checking in on older people and what they might need while they're in lockdown. And the third thing they're doing is kind of this massive disinfectant of public, disinfecting of public spaces. Um, so, yeah. So um, um, one of the people from the popular committee in Bethlehem was saying the most wonderful thing about what happened is everything happened with Palestinian resources. Um, mm. So there was Palestinian people doing the volunteering. There were Palestinian oil that was being distributed and Palestinian vegetables that were being distributed. Like it was that classic sense that actually they didn't need the whole world to give to them. What they needed was kind of, you know, well, they had all they needed to be able to provide. So um, Palestinians are saying there's kind of a new energy. Um, mm. Because Palestine, like many other places with political persecution, have been divided and conquered a lot. And the people aren't, in a general sense, aren't very happy with the Palestinian leadership. Um, but in this moment, they've been able to come together. So there's a weird kind of silver lining to this horrible cloud. And I, I guess, uh, and people are sort of, uh, what do you think that that would mean? Like, if, if people are using Palestinian resources and, um, and there's sort of this hope, uh, are people sort of talking about beyond COVID at the moment or is that, was this too early to say? I think it's too early except it sparked the imagination about yeah. what could be possible because every sort of Palestinian resistance in the last you know, a few decades has been met with such brutal yeah. kind of pushback from Israel. I think Palestinians uh, could be tempted into thinking that they are less powerful than they are. And so I think that there is a spark, re-sparking in the imagination about what people can achieve collectively. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we see this mirrored in Australia as well with a whole lot of people thinking collectively um, and, and neighbourhood-wise in a whole lot of new ways. So I think... You know, like we are in Australia, kind of going, oh, what, what shifts could be possible? 
as a result of this horrible crisis. I think a similar thing is happening in the West Bank, at least. Yeah. Mm. Just to wrap up, so if our listeners would like to get involved um, in APAN or in some of the campaigns that you're running at the moment, um, including for uh, calling on Australia to be part of lifting the blockade on Palestine, um, how could they get involved? Uh, the easiest way is to go to our website, apan.org.au, so the letters for Australia Palestine Advocacy Network, and you can sign up to our email there and all our social media links are there as well. So it would be wonderful to have people engaged. We're thinking creatively, as all campaigns are, about how to offer training and support and events online um, as we get through this time. But certainly, you know, things are terrible here in Australia in terms of responding to the coronavirus, but nothing like what it is to live under a military occupation. Jess, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. If I can finish with a wee little kind of... Sure, uh, please. ...of hope. Yeah. Uh, So people might have remembered in the um, federal election campaign last year, Melissa Park, Um, a former Labor member for Fremantle, uh, went for Julie Bishop's blue ribbon seat, which she was never going to get. And almost as soon as she put her nomination up and was um, confirmed as the Labor candidate, there were attacks, vicious attacks on her for being anti-Semitic. And there were a whole lot of speeches that she'd given that were brought out to say that she was rabid and anti-Jewish and, you know, this horrific human being. And the Herald Sun ran a front-page story about it. Uh, well, last week, the Herald Sun ran an apology to Melissa Park for the things that they said about her. And not only that, but her, uh, they printed an opinion piece by her um, about why we must be very careful about how we use the term anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitism, of course, is a serious and horrific um, form of discrimination, but it can't be used as a weapon against those who are advocating for human rights. Um, so Melissa Park tweeted last week, because uh, her opinion piece sat to the right of, of Andrew Bolt's piece. <laughs> so she said, never have I sat to the right of Andrew Bolt. <laughs> so it's wonderful that Melissa Park has been able to secure an apology from the Murdoch press and push back against the weaponisation of anti-Semitism. So that was kind of a good news story that's come out uh, last week. Oh, thanks so much for sharing that. And thanks, Jess. <laughs> Great. Thank you. And thanks to everyone at 3CR who's doing amazing at trying to adapt to this kind of new reality we're in at the moment and doing wonderful work about keeping good radical radio on the air. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. You're listening to 3CR, where at this time we're bringing you slightly different programming than usual. But rest assured, we're still here, bringing you radical, alternative current affairs, music and community language programming. 
Stay tuned to 3CR. Take your time. joined by Gala Vanting, Acting President of the Scarlet Alliance, uh, to talk about the impacts that coronavirus is having on sex workers. Welcome, Gala. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Can you first start by telling listeners um, a bit about the impacts that you're already seeing because of the coronavirus pandemic? Sure. Um, so I guess the primary impact that the coronavirus has had on sex workers is, um, is a financial one and economic one. Um, sex workers are overwhelmingly uh, sole traders or independent contractors, um, and so if they can't work, uh, then they can't earn. Um, and so there's been lots of, uh, I guess, um, lots of factors that have affected their ability to work. And you know, as the pandemic started, there for some workers there was a, a loss of client interest or a loss of their own interest in sex working. Um, many workers have tried to move their services online with varying degrees of success. 
Um, and so I guess there's a lot of adaptation happening, but uh, we, that's not really um, as meaningful in, in its effectivity for them as would be, um, you know, economic stimulus measures or financial relief. Um, and the government has definitely made some of that acceptable to some sex workers, but there are lots of sex workers who fall through that safety net. Um, and that's a really big concern for us because it also flows on to other things like lack of access to stable housing, access to health care, you know, it's a particular concern for people who have dependents or who work, you know, choose sex work because they are chronically ill or um, they have a disability. So there's a lot of negative impacts and, you know, this this affects every sex worker differently, um, but I think all of us across the board are absolutely um, having a a pretty hard time right now. Mm, Absolutely. And what are the demands that Scarlet Scarlet Alliance is calling on from the government? Scarlet Alliance has made lots of demands from government of late, Um, most of which have not been responded to directly. But um, look, we call for the immediate inclusion of centrally ineligible sex workers in the financial relief measures. There's lots of people in our community who are not eligible for centrally benefits, including um, some non-resident and migrant sex workers, um, people who don't have a fixed address. Um, and, and we want to make sure that um, that, that legal status is not um, does not preclude their access to really basic um, basic needs. Um, we also uh, demanded crisis funding to Scarlet Alliance to work with our member orgs to distribute emergency relief to sex workers and also crisis funding for each of those member orgs. So we're a national peak body who have member orgs in each state and territory. Um, we've demanded access to health care for all sex workers, uh, eviction prohibitions, and we, we stand in solidarity with those calling for federal rent freezes and the like. Um, we call for, you know, no disconnection of utilities, um, and better messaging around translation uh, to the languages spoken in the Australian community. You know, we find that there's a lot of kind of mixed messages and that they're not very clear, and that makes it a lot harder for um, for people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds to understand what's required. Um, and we also want to see a limitation on non-compliance signs for sex workers. Mm. Yeah, very, very valid demands. And... Last week, Max spoke with Peaches, a sex worker living in Naram, and they spoke about how sex workers are the leaders in managing health and safety at work. Um, what are some of the ways in which listeners and people can learn from the sex work industry during this pandemic? I mean, sex workers have, have always had a pretty high standard of things like, um, you know, workplace health and safety measures around hygiene, and they're great educators around um, transmission and that sort of thing. And that was definitely proven in the HIV pandemic um, where we were re- really recognized as leaders in, in keeping um, the, the numbers in Australia as low as they could be. Um, and look, I think that there are, um, there's, there are, of course, awful stereotypes that exist around sex workers um, being disease vectors or, you know, the like. Uh, and I guess that's something that, um, that, that is probably coming up in, or certainly coming up in, in this pandemic. Um, but it's, it's a little bit, I, I don't find that shocking in any way. And I think that sex workers face stigma and discrimination across many axes when they're, you know, just seeking basic services or 
to be to be citizens. Um, and so I'm, I feel, you know, disheartened, but not surprised. And here in Victoria, um, we've seen extra police measures and extra surveillance measures put in place, all in the name of public health and safety. Are you seeing the further policing of the sex worker industry during this time? Well, the first, the very first um, case of a, um, a finding issued for non-compliance um, actually occurred in the sex industry, um, and that happened in New South Wales. And again. I feel that this is not this is not a surprise. You know, um, there are lots of sex industry businesses that police would love to have any reason to shut down or to um, to otherwise, you know, enforce in some way. Um, and this kind of gives them a lot more of a loose framework in which to do that. Um, and I think that yes, we will absolutely see um, increased policing against a number of marginalised communities. Um, it, given the increased police powers that we're seeing. Um, and I think that, you know, we will watch this space and Scarlet Alliance will certainly be speaking out against that um, as much as we can as we see it roll out and also supporting our member organisations to provide support to those who have been um, fined or otherwise, you know, uh, made to suffer the penalty. Mm. So in what ways can listeners support the sex work industry during this time? I think the best thing that I can suggest um, for those who are able is to donate to the Scarlet Alliance um, fundraiser. So Scarlet Alliance and our member organizations have put together a trust campaign. So I think it's like trust.org. If you Google trust and sex work, you should find it. Um, and that's a space that's going to be ongoing for as long as we can keep it going and as long as the need is there. Um, so people are able to contribute uh, money to that fund and then we are able to distribute it um, to sex workers who need it. Um, and, and for sex workers who do this, there is also an application on the chat page uh, where they can apply to receive some of those funds. Um, and I think, you know, I guess the other thing, which is something that I would always ask of, of people, is to um, to resist and speak out against sex work stigma when you see and hear it. There's definitely a bit of bad media out there, um, a lot of blaming of sex workers for being in the impossible position of having to choose between um, keeping themselves and their community safe and uh, needing to earn an income. Uh, and I think that we're... we're uh, we don't at all hesitate to villainize sex workers um, who who are forced to make that choice. Um, so I just want to encourage people to have conversations um, with the, you know with people when they see that stuff happening um, and resist those really stereotypical um, and hackneyed dialogues around about us. Absolutely. And I really encourage listeners to check out the Scarlet Alliance website um, and, yeah, just support Scarlet Alliance as much as possible and back the demands that they're asking of the government. Thank you so much, Gala, for sharing your time. Pleasure. Talk soon. And that was a conversation that I had with Gala Vanting, acting president of Scarlet Alliance, about the impacts that coronavirus is having on sex workers. And now I think we're going to play a track by Pataphysics. This one is called First Casualty. The news is PR for the rich. Shifting the focus and maintaining group thing. Manufacturing consent is building up the scent. But nothing happened in the event with 99%. 
percent. Yo, it ain't about facts, what that narrative lacks. And about redrawing borders on the cognitive map. Yeah, damn it, propaganda gone out of hand. The plan to give a refugees a lifetime band. Yeah, the leaders had their food. It started in their schools. Preventing revolutionaries was the goal to prove. No need to control with that fear and violence. Crippled with apathy, uh, hear the silence. Power will always take, subsidized by the state. Oversaturation of information, but what is fake? Political processes don't work. Systems of government don't work. Free market economics don't work. Legal, judicial, homie, it don't work. That old gray method ain't what it used to be. Said, hey, what it used to be. Passion is fashion by federal institutions Irrational resistance Transnationals production of capital Hope within the people Woke dreamers vote fractional Now it don't matter if the thieves get caught Try to avoid the consequence Legislation's been bought There's no critical thought Cause it's never been taught Yeah, since after Vietnam Yeah, we don't see the whole four Yeah, the devil's a Military security forces, mercenaries for hired easily cross borders, flying under the banner of corporate orders. No safe for local activists or even reporters. Finite probability, total system collapse when control change faster than the people can adapt. That's all we've got time for on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Thanks so much for tuning in this morning. First up on the show, you heard from Carly with her series Liberation Loops, talking with Vincent Silk. You heard a conversation I had with May Kotsakis from the Philippine-Australia Solidarity Association about Damian Mergante, uh, a collective aid effort supporting migrant workers and international students. You also heard from Jessica Morrison from APAN about the situation in Palestine at the moment during the COVID-19 pandemic. And you heard a conversation that Carly had with Gala Vanting from Scarlet Alliance about impacts of the, of the pandemic for sex workers. And in terms of the songs that you heard this morning, we had Baker Boy with Move, Sophie Grophy, Evil, and Calypso, Beyond Desire. I hope you have enjoyed the show this morning. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. I guess so, and we'll be recording from our homes again. Um, stay tuned for Lost in Science and Friday Breakfast tomorrow morning. Hope everyone stays safe out there. We're thinking of you all. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month 
at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.